Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning and welcome to H&R Real Estate Investment Trust 2021 fourth quarter earnings conference call. Before beginning the call, H&R would like to remind listeners that certain statements, which may include predictions, conclusions, forecasts, or projections in the remarks that follow, may contain forward-looking information, which reflect the current expectations of management regarding future events and performance, and speak only as of today's date. Forward-looking information requires management to make assumptions or rely on certain material factors and is subject to inherent risks and uncertainties, and actual results could differ materially from the statements in the forward-looking information. In discussing H&R's financial and operating performance and responding to your questions, we may reference certain financial measures which do not have a meaning recognized or standardized under IFRS, or Canadian Generally Accepted Accounting Principles, and are therefore unlikely to be comparable to similar measures presented by other reporting issuers. Non-GAAP measures should not be considered as alternatives to net income or comparable metrics determined in accordance with IFRS as indicators of H&R's performance, liquidity, cash flows, and profitability. H&R's management uses these measures to aid in assessing the REIT's underlying performance and provides these additional measures that investors can do the same. Additional information about the material factors, assumptions, risks, and uncertainties that could cause actual results to differ materially from the statements in the forward-looking information and the material factors or assumptions that may have been applied in making such statements, together with details on H&R's use of non-GAAP financial measures, are described in more detail in H&R's public filings, which can be found on our website at www.cedar.com. I would now like to introduce Mr. Tom Hofstetter, Chief Executive Officer of H&R REIT. Please go ahead, Mr. Hofstetter. Good morning, and thank every, everyone for joining us today to discuss H&R's fourth quarter and year-end financial and operating results and provide an update on our strategic repositioning plan. With me on the call are Larry Frum, our CFO, Philip Lapointe, President of Land Tower Residential. 2021 was a truly transformational year for the REIT. Despite the enduring global pandemic, our teams accomplished many substantial milestones. Through transactions valuing over $4 billion, we successfully enhanced our portfolio's geographical exposure, asset mix, and tenant diversification, while also lowering leverage and increasing liquidity. In the fall, H&R announced its transformational strategic repositioning plan to create a simplified, growth-oriented business focusing on residential and industrial properties to serve a significant value for our unit holders. Our target is to be a leading owner, operator, and developer of residential and industrial properties creating value through redevelopment and greenfield development in prime locations within Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, and high-growth U.S. Sunbelt and Gateway cities. The strategic plan encompasses four key initiatives. The first initiative was the tax-free spin-off to unit holders of all of H&R's enclosed malls into Primaris REIT, a new, completely independent, standalone, publicly traded entity. The spin-off simplifies and enhances H&R's asset mix and enables investors to value Primaris' full-service internal national management platform and properties. The second initiative will be the exit of our remaining retail assets, including our grocery-anchored and essential service retail properties, and our interest in Echo Realty. Our $600 million grocery-anchored and essential service portfolio is comprised of high-quality properties anchored by strong covenant tenants such as Lowe's, Metro, Sobeys, and Walmart. These 55 properties comprising 2.7 million square feet are 98.5% leased and are primarily located in Ontario. Our investment in Echo Realty comprises 236 grocery-anchored shopping centers. This portfolio is similarly 95.8% leased primarily to Giant Eagle, the largest supermarket chain in Ohio and Pennsylvania. Our third initiative is strategic disposition over time of all our office properties that do not offer significant redevelopment potential. There are currently 16 unique high-quality office properties located in central business districts in major cities across the United States and Canada that meet this criteria. These properties are 99.5% occupied with a weighted average remaining lease term of 9.3 years 
and are leased primarily to strong investment-grade tenants. The development team has been working diligently on the balance of the office portfolio to advance them through rezoning. We expect these 11 properties to yield 5,300 residential units and 390,000 square feet of industrial space upon approval. Last summer, we commenced the execution of our strategy to exit the office market with the successful sale of the Bow, a 2 million square foot office building in Calgary, Alberta, and the sale of the Bell Office campus in Mississauga, Ontario. We are very confident in our ability to sell the remaining office portfolio in line with our IFRS fair values. The fourth leg of our strategy is to grow our residential and industrial portfolios through the development and prime locations in high-growth U.S. Sunbelt and Gateway cities. We launched Land Tower Residential in 2014 and to date have invested over $2.3 billion with construction of six developments expected to start later this year. 2021 was a monumental year for capital allocation, where we made huge strides forward in repositioning the REIT. To date, we have significantly transformed our portfolio composition, geographical exposure, tenant mix, growth profile, and balance sheet. These steps are moving us closer to our goals of streamlining and simplifying our portfolio and company. We have no doubt that we will achieve our disposition objectives. We would like to be in a position to give you more concrete guidance at this time on our disposition program. But in order to prudently manage earnings, ensure we always maintain our investment grade rating, disposition should be timed with capital deployment, whether it be for development to buy back units or for acquisitions as funds are required. At this time, the best use of our capital is buying back our units, which are trading at a substantial discount to NAV. In 2022, we plan to continue allocating capital diligently, starting with the utilization of our NCIB, buying back 4.2 million H&R units to date for $55 million at a weighted average cost of $13, representing a 27% discount to our net asset value per unit of $17.70. We plan to continue to buy back units if the significant discount persists. With our path forward now clearly established, our teams are executing efficiently and effectively on our plan to create a simplified, growth-oriented company focusing on expanding our residential land tower platform and industrial portfolio to surface significant value for our unit holders. And with that, I'll turn it over to Philippe to discuss our residential platform, land tower. Philippe? Good morning, everyone. With the release of our strategic repositioning plan in October that carefully laid out H&R's vision, we are delighted to have successfully executed on the first key parts of this plan. We have shifted our focus to the next steps and are preparing to redeploy capital into our development pipeline as we manage through the remaining divestitures of the legacy office and retail properties. Jackson Park and Lantar residential developments are especially relevant in giving comfort to unit holders that a creative redeployment of capital into the residential sector is weaved into H&R's DNA. And with that, let's dive into Lantar Residential's impressive quarterly results. When excluding Jackson Park, same asset property operating income from our portfolio in U.S. dollars increased by 9% and 7.8%, respectfully, respectively, for the three months ending on December 31, 2021, and the full four-year 2021 compared to the respective 2020 periods. Including Jackson Park, same asset property operating income from our portfolio in U.S. dollars increased by 33% and decreased by 3.5%, respectively, for the three months ending on December 31, 2021, and for the full 2020 years compared to the respective 2020 periods. River Landing is a unique $500 million mixed-use development located in Miami, Florida. Its residential component leased up a full year ahead of schedule while also capturing market rents above our expectations after increasing rents seven times throughout the lease-up period. For example, on a net effective basis, our current lease rate is over 40% over our initial lease rate when the lease-up began. Riverlanding is truly a one-of-a-kind asset for the Miami market, and its exceptional design will provide H&R with a tremendous competitive advantage for years to come. As we mentioned previously, we are experiencing substantial rental growth momentum in all of our U.S. Sunbelt markets. By way of example, our new lease trade-off for our entire portfolio, excluding Jackson Park, was approximately 14.7% throughout quarter four. As an additional interesting data point, we have renewed or released approximately 55% of our rent roll during those eight months. Thus, we are encouraged by the strong demand fundamentals in the residential sector and very excited by the expected future value creation. On the development front, Land Tower currently expects to break ground on at least six distinct projects in 2022 and further developments to follow in 2023. 
In 2022, we expect to break ground on six projects. West Love, Midtown, and City Line are all three in Dallas, Bayside in Tampa, Sunrise in Orlando, and the first phase of the Cove in Jersey City, which represents on a combined basis 2,147 apartments, which would grow a portfolio by nearly 25%. Anecdotally, we would like to highlight that current demand for multifamily has all but eliminated the lease-up discount, as properties are valued at their full stabilized value upon receiving their final certificate of occupancy, regardless of their lease status. And in 2023, we intend to break ground on at least six more projects in our existing markets, nine sites that are either currently owned or under contract, which combined would be over 2,200 additional units, further growing a portfolio by an additional 25%. On the JV development front, the Pearl in Austin is under contract to sell with a closing anticipated in March of 2022. Phase two of our Hercules development named the Granite Bayfront has begun its leasing and is currently 23% at least. And lastly, Shoreline Gateway in Long Beach, California is now 31.4% leased. In conclusion, and on behalf of H&R REIT's executive team, I can unequivocally state that we understand how much work is in front of us, and accordingly, that we embrace that responsibility and look forward to continuing our strategic repositioning and creating unit holder for value for years to come. And with that, I will pass along the conversation to Larry. Thank you, Philippe, and good morning, everyone. The fourth quarter of 2021 was a very active quarter for H&R with a number of moving parts. We've added additional disclosures to the financial statement notes and MDNA to help understand the effects of the boat sale and primary spin-off. In October 2021, the REIT sold its ownership in the property known as the Bowen Calgary, Alberta to Oak Street Real Estate Capital. The sale to Oak Street included a sale of 40% of the future income stream derived from the Bose lease with Aventus until the end of the lease term in May 2038. In a separate transaction, H&R sold a further 45% of the future Aventus lease stream to Deutsche Bank. Total gross proceeds from the two transactions were $946 million. Effectively, after these two transactions, H&R is left with a 15% interest in the Bose lease to Aventus, which runs to May 2038. The REIT has an option to repurchase 100% of the bow for approximately $737 million, or $368 per square foot, in 2038 or earlier. This favorable call option is substantially below the current sale proceeds, and it provides H&R the ability to capture potential future upside in the Calgary office market over the next 16 years. Although the REIT has legally transferred ownership of the bow to Oak Street, because of the favorable option to repurchase, the transaction did not meet the criteria of a transfer of control under IFRS 15, and as a result, we A, continue to account for the Boeing investment properties on the balance sheet, B, recorded the net proceeds received by the REIT from these transactions as deferred revenue to be amortized over the remaining term of the lease, and C, will continue to record 100% of the lease revenues from the Boeing even though we only actually receive 15%. For FFO purposes, we have deducted the accrued rent from the event of lease, as well as added back the accretion finance expense on the Bose deferred revenue. I encourage all of you to read note 10 to the financial statements. In that note, we have also disclosed the income statement of the Bose for the quarter and for the year end of December 31st, 2021, and have disclosed how much of that income was received in cash, and how much revenue has been accrued for IFRS accounting. On page 9 of the MGNA and in the press release, we have also expanded the financial statement note to reconcile the both net income to FFO and AFFO for the quarter and year. We will continue to include this information going forward, and we welcome feedback as to how we can improve this disclosure and our broader disclosure as a whole. The successful sale of the Bow and Bell office campus significantly reduced H&R's Calgary office exposure, improved the REIT's asset and concentration risks, and improved our overall credit metrics. This transaction was critical to enable the successful spin-off of Primaris with the low leverage capital structure that it has, while at the same time reducing H&R's overall leverage. The results from the Primaris spin-off of the Primaris properties are included in our results for the quarter, 
and year end of December 31st, 2021, but the property's assets and liabilities were not consolidated into H&R's balance sheet at December 31st, 2021. Under IFRS, the spin-off is treated as a distribution to unit holders on December 31st, and the details of this can be seen in Note 13D to our financial statements. We have also provided disclosure isolating Primaris' financial results for the three months and year ended December 31, 2021, including reconciliations to FFO and AFFO. This can be found on page 11 of the MDNA and is included in our press release. Included in H&R's property operating income for the three months and year ended December 31, 2021, was $34.6 million and $134.1 million respectively relating to the 27 properties being contributed by H&R to Primaris REITs. Turning to our office segment, same asset property operating income on a cash basis increased by 4.9% as compared to Q4 2020 and was primarily due to Hess Corporation's lease extension agreement with full rent commencing in July 2021. Office occupancy was 99.2% a testament to the high-quality nature of our office portfolio. Retail same asset property operating income on a cash basis decreased by 0.7% for the three months end of December 31, 2021, compared to Q4 2020, primarily due to the weakening of the US dollar. Excluding this impact of foreign exchange, same asset property operating income increased by 2.2%. As a reminder, the primary properties were excluded from same asset. For our industrial segment, same asset property operating income on a cash basis decreased 3.4% compared to Q4 2020, primarily due to vacancy at an Oakville, Ontario industrial property. Overall, FFO per unit decreased from 42 cents in Q4 2020 to 35 cents in Q4 2021 primarily due to the property sales. Included in Q4 2021's FFO are debt prepayment costs totaling $4.7 million. Excluding this prepayment cost, FFO for Q4 2021 would have been $0.36 cents per unit. Moving to the balance sheet, at your end, debt to total assets at the REITs proportionate share which has been adjusted to exclude the borrower was 46.6% compared to 51.1% at the start of the year, and debt to adjusted EBITDA was 7.2 times. Unencumbered assets as a percentage of unsecured debt was 1.95 times coverage, an improvement from 1.48 times at the beginning of the year. H&R ended the year with ample liquidity. We had cash on hand of approximately $124.1 million and $952.4 million available under our unused lines of credit. In addition, we have an unencumbered property pool of approximately $4 billion. And with that, I'll turn it back to Tom. Thank you, Larry. I'm very proud of what we have accomplished in 2021. Transacting on over $4 billion of real estate is no small feat, and I thank our loyal and hardworking employees for their tireless dedication, flexibility, and adaptability through this considerable period of change at H&R. We will endeavor to continue the cadence of our work and perform in 2022, executing against our strategic repositioning plan. Management and the board remain fully committed and are actively evaluating opportunities to increase unit holder value and address the significant discount at which our units trade to the REITs $17.70 net asset value per unit. Management, members of the board and their families collectively own more than $300 million or approximately 8% of the equity in H&R REIT, providing strong alignment with unit holders in pursuit of the REIT's objectives. Looking ahead, we recognize that we have an opportunity for better and broader communication of our strategic repositioning plan, in addition to continuing to demonstrate meaningful steps to arrive at our capital allocation goals. We are very excited about the future of H&R and want to impress upon everyone on the call that 2022 marks the beginning of a new era for our company. Equipped with a strong balance sheet, significant liquidity, enhanced portfolio concentration to large primary markets with strong population and economic growth, we are very well positioned to take advantage of opportunities. We'd now be pleased to answer any questions. Operator, please open the line for questions. Certainly. If you'd like to ask a question at this time, please press star then one on your telephone keypad. 
Our first question is from Mario Saric with Scotiabank. Your line is open. Hi, good morning. Um, just with respect to the, the planned dispositions over the next five years, um, you know, inflation is a really hot topic these days. But when you when you think about the disposition program that you're having and the conversations that you're having with potential buyers, um, how has that evolved over the past six to nine months as inflation becomes kind of increasingly uh, a subject of discussion? That's an interesting question. So, because you targeted it to inflation, which is that's quite, I don't think that's paramount in everyone's mind. It's more the, uh, what I would have thought, it's more the uncertainty about the future of office, which we all know is a question mark, and uh, the future of retail in light of what's going on out there and has gone on through the pandemic. I never actually heard, uh, Mary, anybody ask the question the way you have, which is in light of how does it, how is inflation affecting, although you, you could be onto something. I don't think that's the concern of the market. In the case of H&R, um, we've had numerous discussions. Obviously, we're looking to sell and what we should be selling. So we've had, had numerous discussions. Nothing surrounds around inflation. It surrounds, it surrounds around the uncertainty. But in the case of our assets, uh, we have long-term leases with credit tenants and, and good locations. So it really doesn't have a big impact on our valuations or on the demand for our assets. I think our assets are better positioned even than Royal Bank, which is one of the few assets that actually sold recently, because it's more bite-sized than that large asset. Our, our largest asset, which was the, you know, the bow, involved creativity in selling it. The balance of our portfolio we're looking to sell does not involve that level of creativity. It's straightforward real estate. Uh, in all cases, just about the rents are below market, almost all cases. And so we're expecting high demand. We don't think that's a very big challenge to achieve our goal and be able to, be able to sell at RFS values, probably we'll be able to sell at significant values in excess of that. Um, I give it you our course uh, asset on the waterfront in Toronto is a good example, long-term lease, good, good tenant, uh, a, a very desirable asset, very typical of a lot of the assets we own. I don't think inflation is our problem. Inflation only manifests itself into what your opinion is on interest rates, and everyone will have different opinions on that, and that will affect every sector of real estate, whether it's in our land tower division or our office division. But right now, the the the, the, the inflation is not the issue. It's really the, the sectors and what are the d demands, what are the buyers' expectations in the sectors of office and, and retail. And uh, again, for our portfolio, which is high quality, uh, you know, surprisingly enough, through this pandemic, uh, retail has survived in the form of a single tenant grocery. The Echo portfolio is probably worth more, substantially more than it was pre-pandemic. Sales are way, way higher. The company's way, way stronger. It paid off all its debt. And all of our single tenant retail assets are, are very, very simply sold without, a, without any question at all. So I don't have any hesitation to tell you that I'm very confident we'll be able to transact on a very timely basis. I don't think inflation is really key on everybody's minds. Yeah, I guess um, rather than... Uh classifying it as a potential challenge uh, as perhaps maybe coming at it from the opposite end of the spectrum insofar as presumably you know, a lot of that 3.4 billion has contractual rent increases whether it's inflation indexed or uh, based on some other measure um, did you have it which in an inflation environment would presumably be more attractive as opposed to less attractive um, do you have a sense in terms of what percentage of that 3.4 billion would have inflation index leases or contractual rent step-ups, which are annual every five years or so on and so forth? Yeah, I can honestly tell you the answer is zero. We don't, none of our leases are CPI oriented, only upon, will you have a catch-up upon expiry. Everything else for the past many years are 10%, which is 10% every five or 2% annually. Other than the latest trend in industrial is seeing three to 4% annual escalators, but that's just the industrial world. Uh, retail, as you well know, does not even have the 2%. It has, you know, if you take a shoppers or you take a metro, it's a 50 cents on a $13 rent. It doesn't align itself with the historical 2% or 10% every five. Our portfolio, therefore, whatever is leased, is, has the contractual rental escalations. We've been using 2%, 1.5-2% annually for a long time. I think inflation may have an impact on the rental growth, and you've, as I said, you've seen it dramatically change. Uh, overnight in the industrial world, where it is in Canada is 3%, in the United States it's tracking 4% on annual escalators. So, 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 good morning, Mary. Just to, to be clear, so most of our property on our office is long-term lease that does have, annual, does have contractual rental bumps, 
Well, Tom is saying they're not linked to inflation, but they do have <coughs> contractual rental escalators. Yeah, 10% every five or 2% annually, whatever the case may be. None of them are, are annual escalators based on CPI. The industry doesn't even have that. Not even in industrial do you see that. You see, again, a higher level of 3 to 4%, but you never find annually contracted based on CPI. I don't think you'd find tenants uh, very receptive to that uh, formula in America. Okay, two more quick ones on, on my end, then I'll, I'll hand it back. In terms of the, the targeted 3% uh, same property wide growth in 22, uh, could you perhaps break that down by vertical and how much of that would be as a result of lower expected by debt expense in 22 versus 21? And then secondly, is that is the 3% essentially your long-term annual target growth with the revised portfolio? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I'll, thanks, Mario. Larry, I'll try and answer that question. Um, I don't, basically, most of our growth will be coming from the residential portfolio. We target, we're targeting on the residential portfolio significantly higher growth than the 3%, um, which will be offset by the rest of the portfolio, which is probably slightly below the 3%. We'll call it office and industrial around 1%. Um, a lot of the industrial and office has, although it has contractual rental escalators, those will affect, affect cash, but don't affect FFO. They only affect AFFO and not FFO. But overall, 3% is, is a reasonable for the overall, overall portfolio. Okay. Uh, and then the last question, just uh, in the past, you provided some disclosure on the Jackson Park in Rivers Landing and Hawaii and FFO. Uh, I may have missed it this quarter, but if uh, if I haven't, uh, is that something we can provide for Q4? No, good question. Um, we did not provide the, the disclosure. Jackson Park basically is, for Q4, was operating pretty close to stabilized operating income. So no need to adjust for that. However, I do want to caution going forward into 2022, um, although it's operating as a full stabilizing company. Now, the, most of the lease up that happened at Jackson Park happened in Q2 and Q3. There were concessions given when that lease up occurred in terms of free, free rent months to the tenants. Uh, most, some of that occurred at the beginning of the lease and some of it occurred at the end of the lease. So we're expecting in Q2 and Q3 of this year, 2022, that there will be a slight drop off from the current level that Jackson Park uh, achieved in Q4, just as those concessions come up in Q2 and Q3. As far as river landing goes, as Philippe mentioned, um, the residential is fully stabilized. The, uh, the retail has been slower due to COVID, and so that is not operating as near stabilized yet. Um, that probably won't be stabilized till the end of 2022. Well, I'll give you an update on, on River Landing. Uh, just um, on the point of uh, um, LIC, the reason that Larry's mentioning the uh, concessions go over a period of time is because we didn't want to have uh, uh, roles where, where the tenants are competing with each other with typical industry. So an incentivized tenant to take longer-term leases so we don't have uh, expiries banging up against each other. We staggered the concessions it, uh, depending on whether it was a year, two, or three-year lease. And that's why you're seeing them go into the future longer than they normally would have. In the case of River Landing, as Larry said, the residential is totally uh, stabilized. It's uh, a lease. Its, its rents are obviously hugely significantly higher than originally forecasted. Originally, we had $2.40 
um, and going back when we did our projections, and we're hitting four-ish four right now, so way, way higher. The office, thank God, is, um, is doing very, very well. We have three and a half floors of office in total. Let's call it 140,000 square feet. The top floor is now leased long-term, 20 years uh, to the uh, county. To, sorry, 10 years to the county. That's floor number seven and part of six. Floor number five is now leased fully on a 20-year basis to Jackson Memorial Hospital. 1M, uh, which is a 17,000 square foot floor, is uh, is ba basically been approved and done to Jackson Memorial. Not uh, not proved, not gone through. Um, uh, the board yet. It went through the board. One board member got COVID, which seems to be the story of life right now. So the, the uh, uh, meeting was delayed to February 24th. And the final little bits and pieces that are left, the partial of the sixth floor, it's right now a bidding war between uh, three tenants that are in the area that have to move because their building's being demolished. So we expect the office building to be fully leased within the next, I don't know, 90 days or so. At least all everything other than maybe a slight part of the sixth. And it'll take us, the first tenant moving in is the county, that's in March of this year, paying rent. Uh, Jackson Memorial starts construction uh, in, of the leaseholds in around 30 days or 45 days once the plans are approved and we have permit. So I expect the rest of the office to be up and fully uh, paying rent by Q4 towards the end of the year for sure. The retail, uh, now all of the restaurant space on the river is done at least. Construction, it's, um, it's an expensive build-out, um, it's, it's a very high profile, it's very high, high in demand, river, river uh, restaurant space today. So it's leased, it's leased to quality tenants, uh, the build-out's going to be expensive, as, as I said. Um, you can have the anchor tenant, which is the, large, the oldest restaurant chain in America, coming in there, taking their flagship, which is a 17,000 square foot store, comprised of uh, riverfront uh, space, uh, ground, mezzanine, and rooftop. And that'll be commencing construction probably in 45 days. All of the restaurant space on the river should be occupied by the end of the year. It's fully leased, as I said. It's just a question of the build-out. And the balance of the retail space is either substantially leased or under LOI. Um, again, it should be totally stabilized by the end of the year. Okay. Uh, thanks for the color and the detail, Tom. And uh, I, for, I, for one, am looking forward to the property tour if and when uh, H&R organizes one. So we're dying to take everyone there. Um, the sooner the better. I'm just waiting for, as you are, I'd love to show you the property. It's really a spectacular. Thank you. The next question is from Matt Kornack with National Bank Financial. Your line is open. Uh, good morning, guys. Um, just, just quickly, Larry, going back on um, the, the Jackson Park impact, in terms of that higher cost in Q2 and Q3, can you give us a sense as to the, the quantum of that number? Because I did notice sequentially the JV costs came down quite a bit uh, quarter over quarter. Yeah, Max, I expect it will be somewhere in terms of the overall annual basis, somewhere between five and six million dollars lower than on an annual basis. We'll take a five to six million US for the concessions that are coming due in Q2 and Q3. Okay, well, that's helpful. Um, with regards to the U.S. Uh, multifamily development, uh, can you give us a sense as to the, the CapEx outlay, um, when those projects ultimately will start throughout the course of this year, um, and, and maybe an, an expected spend for the next uh, two years on, on that development? Believe you want to take it? Yep, sure. Um, so, excluding the cove, which is a um, just kind of a different animal in of itself, the five in the Sun Belt, we're actually launching uh, Westlove, Midtown, and Bayside. Westlove and Bayside, sorry, Westlove and Midtown are, are being launched in about 30 days. Bayside should be within the next 60 days, um, and then in the fourth quarter of this year, I think we launched Sunrise and City Line. So we should have five active developments um, by the end of this year. As it relates to, uh, I'm sorry. So as it relates to a total spend uh, for 2022, I think uh, obviously the sequence. Are you asking how much we're going to spend in 22, or, or what is the total construction budget for all five? I, if you could give both and kind of the ramp up as to how that construction process looks and, and how the capital outlay looks. Uh, sure. I mean, Larry, chime in whenever you want. Um, but as it relates to kind of the spend for 22, we're looking somewhere in the ballpark of about 150 million. 
in 23, a blend of obviously the six additional starts in addition to continuing the construction for five. So we're looking at probably another 380 million. Uh, those figures, by the way, are in, are in U.S. dollars. Um, on total spend, approximately, I don't have the exact numbers in front of us uh, because we have it on a blended basis. But if I was to take the 2022 starts in total, their construction budget is going to be somewhere uh, in the realm of about, let's say, four, 400 to 450 million. Matter of fact, I've got the data somewhere here. Um, but that's that's pretty much a uh, the right ballpark. Okay, and then construction timeline. It seems like it's a, it's around two years uh, to complete uh, those projects, and then I guess from a, a capital allocation and um, uh, financing standpoint, in in terms of the asset sales that would ultimately go to fund those, are you thinking of pre-financing, financing for the development costs itself, or waiting until completion and then uh, selling assets thereafter? Yeah, so Matt, all, all, obviously all great questions. First of all, let me, let me just circle back. So I have the data in front of me. It's about $408 million for the five assets that are launching in 22. Um, as it relates to financing, frankly, we have a ton of optionality, and I think we're exploring all avenues as, uh, as of right now. Um, I don't know that we've landed on one, frankly, because of how dynamic, but frankly, how um, plentiful the financing options are for our developments. Um, the, the point of the construction period, which I thought was really interesting, which is a departure from our past, is that um, the full recognition of the FMV of the asset is really done upon receiving the certificate of occupancy. And so I know that we were once upon a time asking ourselves, well, when does that full value recognition happen as we're looking at a Gantt chart of all of these 11 starts? And um, obviously delighted to see uh, them impacting NAV in a positive matter probably towards the fourth quarter of 2024. So we lease up um, the lease up for the 15, sorry, the 2022 starts um, actually begin next year. And so by the end of 23, we'll have 11 development projects. We're going to be nearing the end of the three of the five launched in 22. But we're also going to be in the middle of our lease up for the three that we're launching within the next 60 days. So by the end, in other words, by the end of 24, Sorry, by the end of 23, early 24, I expect the completion of some of these assets in addition to the full recognition of, uh, of the fair market value and an important contribution to FFO. Okay. Sounds like uh, you've got a lot of exciting things ahead of you on that front. Um, just quickly on, on the Oakville uh, industrial asset, uh, obviously it's a strong market. Um, can you give us a sense on the timing of, of when that should be into same property NOI? Uh, I would say we're negotiating with three players right now. Uh, you're right, the market's very strong. We initially had it under contract uh, at around nine. It was initially rent, rented to $5 square foot when the tenant rolled out. It uh, went to $9 in the tenant that, was, uh, that we lost. And right now, right now we're circling more like $14 a square foot. I think uh, you'll see it uh, leased up within the next uh, 120 days and then occupancy in 60 days thereafter. And there's no problem with the asset. It, it, uh, it, what happened was, what was uh, the t a name that you know uh, leased it up. We had some issues. We had to uh, rezone a parking, excess parking, to uh, make it part of the building. We got through all of that, and uh, that tenant couldn't wait around. That's so. But meanwhile, the tenant paid for all the costs. So the downtime was paid for by the tenant, and now it's just back in the market. There's no problem with the asset. It is state of the art, and, and as I said, it, it should lease in the $14 range. Okay, well, that's that's good. Um, and then last one for me, uh, I mean, you don't have much in the way of lease maturities. It sounds like at least Q1 you should have very strong same property NOI growth. We'll have to adjust for, for some of the stuff uh, on Jackson Park. But um, is there anything we should be concerned about? It seems like you've got uh, a pretty good profile from a same property NOI growth on the residential and industrial side, and, and the office is stable, retail stable. Um, nothing in the office or retail that we need to worry about in the next 12 to 24 no, no. months? No, there's really nothing. Nothing that we worried about nothing. and we accepted no. uh, uh, 2021. And, that, and that's why we say we're confident we can sell the assets back to Mario's initial question. We really are. These are assets that are bite-sized. They are high-quality tenants. They're long-term leased, and they're good, good, good properties. But we'll have no problem selling selling them, and uh, even if the interest rates go up a bit, I don't think that'll be an impairment to our, our first values. 
Okay, great. And uh, congrats on finishing a busy year, and it uh, looks like you've got a few more ahead of you. So have a good Thank day. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. The next question is from Jimmy Shan with RBC. Your line is open. Uh, thanks. Uh, good morning. Uh, in your MDNA, uh, there's a reference made to the 52 cents distribution resulting in a FFO payout ratio of 45 to 55%. Um, and just kind of, so that would imply an FFO of between 95 cents to $1.16. So I was wondering, how, how do we think about that number? Is that a run rate or, and, and what kind of assumptions are embedded in that comment? Hey, Jeremy, that's Larry. Um, a good question. We, our FFO, our distribution is about 52 cents. We try to give you the best guidance as we can, expecting it to be between 40, the payout ratio to be between 45 and 55 percent. Obviously, there's a lot of moving parts between when potential dispositions may happen, and so mm-hmm. we really can't give you any further. I really can't give any further clarity besides that's our expectation and our numbers that you just said. Okay. Along with right. the other comments you've given on the call. Up until now. Don't forget, to a great sure. extent, it depends on how we redeploy the uh, uh, proceeds from dispositions. If it goes into development, it's not accretive. It goes into, uh, if we're selling a 3% cap versus a 7% cap, it's going to have a huge impact. And that's why it's almost impossible for us to uh, uh, to answer that question accurately. Right. I mean, also, the dispositions, I think, are more into buying back our units, or, you know, there's a lot of moving parts. Right. Overall, we're just giving you the guide, the guide Right. We can't even tell you how many units we're buying back. No, no, that's fair. That's why I was wondering, like, what's what's embed, what, what are the assumptions embedded in those two goalposts, right? Like, it's it's a, uh, there's a range, but uh, like on one end, are you assuming a lot of asset sales, or is that just a a rough target that um, you'll you think you'll hit at some point in time? It's a it's a target based on certain assumptions, um, but I just don't think it's appropriate to, to go into all the details of, the disp- of how much dispositions we're expecting to sell. Those may or may not happen, and we don't want to give yeah. any false information out or misleading information. Yeah, as I did mention, the timing of disposition is going to be very much geared to the use of proceeds and how much of our NCIB we actually act upon. So we can't, we can't just sell and record cash. We have ample liquidity, as you well know right now, to really do no dispositions. So we're going to sell on an early basis when the opportunity is there to get above market uh, pricing or when we have a strong use of proceeds. It's, so it's very, very difficult for us to act, answer that act accurately. If we knew the answer, we'd give it to you. Okay, fair enough. Um, just on the multi-res development, um, uh, clearly you have an active pipeline and, and the development yields look pretty interesting. Um, are you seeing any, any cost pressures at all, um, perhaps eating away at those yields? Um, and then and the second comment on that is, is uh, you mentioned, you know, the properties are now being valued without lease of discount. Um, I was curious as to kind of what you're seeing out there in terms of how investors are underwriting rank growth in, the, in this market. Hi, Jimmy. Two great questions. The first is, um, yeah, obviously we're seeing a lot of upward pressure in some of the prices, specifically lumber and um, the unavailability of labor. Um, but I would say that we've accounted for all of that in our yields and then some. And so I don't want to um, have faith, but I think we can withstand uh, a normal uh, plan increase up until we sign, obviously, our GMP contract, at which point the burden for these cost overruns now shifts from us to our uh, nationally recognized general contractors that we select in our respective markets. And so I'm not, while I am seeing what you're seeing, um, I am not all that worried because of, again, the cushion, but also not to mention the fact that we are underwriting conservative rents. And so kind of dovetailing in the second part of your question, that rental growth that we're noticing across the board, we've only partially underwritten in our development yields. And so I think all in all, net-net, we have enough of a cushion there to uh, give me the confidence in obviously sharing those development yields. As it relates to my comment on um, no lease up for discount and how people are underwriting rental growth, yeah, I mean, the, the amount of equity, frankly, that is entering our space on a monthly basis just does not seem to increase. Sorry, to, to decrease. It's just constantly um, 
increasing and increasing. And so what that ends up happening is ultimately there's a very limited supply of available opportunities and the demand makes it so that everyone is rushing to, uh, to buy assets, income producing or not. Um, as far as what they're underwriting on rental assumptions, frankly, I wouldn't be able to speculate as to what the other groups are doing. But suffice it to say that uh, I'm sure most groups are underwriting a healthy renewal and new lease um, increases above and beyond, frankly, the historical averages that we've seen. And that probably translates into why we're seeing record level uh, low cap rates uh, for available U.S. multifamily, especially in the Class A space. Got it. Okay. Thanks, guys. The next question is from Sumaya Syed with CIBC. Your line is open. Thanks. Good morning. Um, this is a question on the Union Street property and resourcing the side for development. I was wondering if you're seeing uh, more of those kinds of deals in the pipeline as part of the residential development strategy, or is the thought to primarily uh, utilize the existing assets for residential redevelopment? So, sorry, it didn't come out clear. Uh, we, can you repeat, please? Yeah, just wondering about the Union Street uh, acquisition in the quarter, and uh, if we should see more of those kinds of deals uh, in the pipeline. Oh, I see. Union Street. Sorry, I couldn't hear. Um, so, will you? Uh, it's opportunistic. Um, we have a division uh, run by Matt Kingston that goes after, who's actually doing all of the reintensification projects in Toronto, for example, or the Berber, uh, the, uh, in Vancouver, we have the uh, tel old Telus Tower that's being reintensified over there as well. So, that is his level of expertise. We haven't made the commitment to go to residential in Canada, and that's why we didn't want to get involved in Dufferin Grove. Nothing wrong with Dufferin Grove. Obviously, it's a great asset. We just didn't want to make the commitment that we'd be building residential vertical in, in Canada. So the, this is a sale and lease back. It's, it's not dilutive to us, and as such, it affords us the luxury of buying it wholesale before the process of, uh, of uh, this, the zoning is going to happen. Um, we're, that's not the issue. Uh, but it allows us to buy at $75 a billable and sell later on in a couple of years now at $125 a square foot. In the three years when the lease is up, we expect the value to increase substantially. At that point in time, we'll elect either to sell or develop, but definitely no commitment to develop. Will, we be, will you be seeing further these properties if the opportunity arises where we can buy it at a wholesale pricing, not diluted to our FFO, then we will consider them. Great, thanks. Um, and then uh, just wondering about the the cap rate move on the multi-residential segment it declined a bit from last quarter and it's wondering if that's just a result of the strong rent growth and recoveries or you know based on any specific transactions just any color that would be helpful i'm sorry Sumai, you, you're not uh maybe it's on my end yeah. but you're not coming in clearly would you mind re restating yeah. the question a little bit louder it's, it's not a question louder. It's, it's gurgle. Sorry, I apologize. It's, it's uh, we have the same problem, Philippe. You're uh, for muffled. some reason it's muffled. Okay, let's uh, try again. <clears throat> Hopefully, it's better. Uh, my question was around the uh, the slight move and decline in the multi-res cap rate, um, and just wondering the assumptions behind that. If that's just based on based on the all-around strong rent growth or any specific transactions that uh, you can speak to. Yeah, okay, I'll, so I'll, uh, thank I'll, you. Sorry, Philippe, I'll just start on, on the historical, and you can give uh, forward-looking maybe a bit of color on what you're seeing in the market. But I think the decrease in our cap rate was just due to Jackson Park and the lease-up that was achieved there, and now full occupant. That was the result of uh, the decrease in our cap rate Q, in now Q4 compared to Q3. And then, Philippe, I don't know if you want to get some color on what you're seeing on the cap rates in the market. Sure. I mean, I think this ties into the answer I gave previously, um, I believe, to uh, to Jimmy. But uh, the demand for multifamily is um, is obviously record level high. Cap rates are definitely in the threes. Now, the issue is we've got two things. Cap rates have compressed very, very quickly. And so we did not want to be uh, overly aggressive with some of our assumptions, which is why we applied the current cap rate that we have on the IFRS while recognizing that it probably will need adjustment at some point in the future. But frankly, the other mitigant is uh, this increase in uh, interest rates. And so if this were to continue and the rate hikes were to materialize, what does that mean for cap rates on a going forward basis? 
Um, frankly, there's a little bit too much volatility, in our opinion, uh, regarding cap rates, and so we're trying to be prudent with a, uh, some may say, overly conservative uh, cap rate applied to our, uh, to our NAV. But right now, cap rates are definitely in the uh, well into the threes, uh, not, not, uh, not the fours. Okay, thanks for the color. I'll turn it back. The next question is from Jenny Ma with BMO Capital Markets. Your line is open. Thanks. Good morning. So um, just continue on the multifamily development. I'm not sure if I missed it, but did you disclose a yield on the 2022 project? Or, or in other words, would it be similar to what we've seen uh, for some of the current development projects in that low 6% range? Hi Jenny. Um, yes, I believe in the uh, in the latest publication or last quarter's publication, we did apply a, uh, a development yield. Those development yields remain, um, generally speaking, unchanged. Um, I don't know that they're low low sixes. I would say on a blended basis, they're let's say a shade under six. Okay. Um, okay. So when we look at the the 2022 starts, and you guys have been selling some of the partial interest in the development. So the six that are slated to start this year are all at 100%. Um, is it fair to say that that suggests these, these are sort of built to keep and, um, and, and really it was the partial interest you're looking at selling? Yeah, the, 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 the modus operandi, or at least the, the, the investment thesis behind the partial developments were frankly optionality. It was the opportunity at no cost to us, so no promote to the developer, uh, to tag along and to benefit from their expertise in gateway markets, specifically on the West Coast, and frankly, get a better feel for the market, identify whether or not we want to expand in those markets. And what we've, you know, I think I mentioned this on a previous call, what we quickly realized was the appetite for those assets versus, frankly, where we can redeploy that equity, but also on a risk-adjusted basis, we thought was a little bit out of whack. And so we we're more than happy to dispose of the assets at um, obviously record prices. I think that should that continue, we would be obviously, we, we would welcome another opportunity to call co-develop or participate in JV developments on the West Coast with that group. We're currently looking at other opportunities. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we had more to announce in the future, but those developments, um, the delta frankly between the going in cap rate, the stabilized development yield, and ultimately the going in cap rates is too wide for us to, uh, to, to meaningfully expand in that presence. Now, dovetailing to our 100% developments, yes, so we're developing all of those assets with the intent on bringing them into our portfolio. Now, that's not to say that all of them will fit the bill, but that's certainly the intent um, initially. Okay. So when we consider that against your comments about the, the, cap, the market cap rates sort of in that uh, 3% range, and, and that was very helpful, thank you. You know, you know, are you looking across your portfolio to see if there's any of those um, out-of-whack opportunities where you might be able to crystallize some value? Like how do you consider the potential for that versus the desire to continue to build out the multifamily portfolio for H&R? Like are you going to strike while the iron's hot or are you going to take a much longer-term view and try to, to build up as much of a portfolio as you can uh, and as quickly as you can? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something that I, with our portfolio managers here in Dallas, uh, probably meet once a month and have those conversations, which we take a look at their entire portfolio and come up with a buy, hold, sell recommendation and explore that. I would say, though, in today's market where we've got rents increasing very, very quickly with very low or minimal capital investment, where back in the day you had to have a significant value add strategy to achieve these returns. Um, I would say that now is probably not the right time to dispose of any existing assets because of the exploding NOI. In other words, I don't know that we would be able to sell at a price where we'd be rewarded uh, as opposed mm -hmm. to just managing the asset for another year or two and seeing where this NOI kind of stabilizes. Um, that's not to okay. say that we won't be selling our assets. We've got, you know, on average age, we're about six years old portfolio-wide, but there's some assets that were built in the early 2000s those may represent on a risk-adjusted basis, especially as we look at the capex coming down the line. Um, we may look to sell. Um, but again, with the disposition in the U.S., you have to always look at the potential 1031 uh, right. exchange and the acquisition. So you're, you're essentially buying into uh, the markets you're selling. And so 
That's not to say we wouldn't do it, but I would like to see an arbitrage opportunity where I could benefit from today's market while not necessarily buying a, um, a fully priced asset. Those opportunities will, oh. will happen. I just don't, don't think they'll come soon. Okay. Well, then maybe those, uh, those prices aren't so out of whack uh, if you think about that. Um, okay. So uh, there was a comment, maybe this is for Larry, uh, in the MDNA about um, H&R's ownership of some Primaris units. I'm not sure I followed that. So I guess my question is, you know, right now, are, are there some Primaris units on the books? And is that something that's really a, a technical residual from the spinoff? Or is that something strategic um, and, and you might be looking to hold some primary students um, to some extent uh, on a constant basis. Hey, Jamie. Um, yes, we do have primary units on the books. Um, that resulted from the spin-off of the uh, getting them in return for the exchangeable units that we hold. That, in, in other words, the exchangeable units were supposed to be switched into HR units and primary units, and so we got primary units to satisfy that obligation. Okay, so is it just something you hold um, in anticipation of fulfilling that obligation? So it's really just like a stagnant uh, piece of it, or how should we think about it's, it? It's not. It's not strategic, Jenny. It's the okay. It, there's no. There's no relationship between primaries and H and R. It's not strategic. Okay. Okay. So this is just a technical outcome yeah. of the spinoff. Okay. Perfect. Um, and then lastly, um, when we're thinking about leverage, you, you had a nice step down. Um, as a result of all that's happening in Q4. Do you have a specific target leverage you're getting to? Um, you know, how do you consider paying down debt versus buying back stock? Um, you know, is the latter really dependent on pricing? Like, how should we think about your, your, your target leverage, say, in the next 12 to 24 months? That's a good question, Jenny. And again, there are many moving parts to it. But, um... <laughs> We'd like to keep it in the range where it is. It may trend slightly higher and then come back down as you do a disposition. So it may float up and then come back down as we sell assets. Um, but basically, we'd like to try and keep it where it is, and we'd like to try to keep our, our credit rating, unsecured credit rating. So no, we will keep our credit rating. It's <laughs> understand that very clearly. It, it is our goal that we are trying to keep trouble behind. Uh, but we're going to leave that debt level pretty much where it is. Yeah. Where it is. Yeah. Okay, so the, so the, the capital allocation towards unit buybacks, uh, Tom, I think you had mentioned, was really a function of where the, the stock would be trading then. Right. Okay. Okay. What, what, what uh, should I tell you? We hope it trades nice and low. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, that's it for me. I'll turn it back. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Sammy. The next question is from Sam Damiani with TD Securities. Your line is open. Thanks, and good morning. Uh, two two questions. Uh, the first one, sort of following up on one of the ones that Jenny just asked, on the unit count, uh, there was some discussion, some reference to the gross-up in the MD&A uh, with some potentially some added units of each and R being issued post quarter end. Is that true? And is that basically, you know, meant to offset the NCIB activity year to date? Or vice versa, I should say. Yes, and yes that is true. Um, subsequent to the year end, January 4th, um, what happened was, and it was all outlaid in the circular uh, to unit holders, that the exchangeable unit holders, for tax reasons and other many other reasons, um, were wanted to only have H&R units. They didn't want to get their primary units. So although we got primary units in order to exchange for them, we had to promise them a, a gross-up of their exchangeables so that they were economically equivalent to what they were before without getting primary units. So those primary units, in short answer, we don't have to hold on our balance sheets. We, we are free to sell them. And instead, the exchangeable unit holders will now get uh, more H&R units than they previously had, and that's laid out in our subsequent events, no disclosure. But it has nothing to do with their Sam, it has nothing to do with our NCIB. Our NCIB is totally related to the fact that we have capacity, and we're trading at a, disc, a huge discount to NAV, so it's our best use of proceeds right now. Okay, two two quick follow-ups. Uh, so, so the unit count for H&R is higher today than it was at your end. The exchangeable units. Uh, yes, are higher. They went from like 13 to 13.4. These are rough numbers. Off yep. the top of my head, 13.4 million 
to roughly 18 million units outstanding for the exchangeable unit holders. Oh, okay. And then, and then secondly, if you have the primaris units to, to and then uh, and then and then sorry, Sam, just to interrupt, and then obviously the regular units have decreased by the activity that we've been doing on the normal course issuer bid. Right, that's separate. Exactly. No, understood. Right. Okay. And then and then so is there any reason you wouldn't continue buying back stock uh, given the the development starts that you're planning for the rest of the year and I guess so far the lack of disposition activity? There's no reason. And just on the disposition side, is there a level of dispositions by year end 22 below which you'd be disappointed? Um, that's a really vague question. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't take my heart gauge to know what disappoints me right now. Hopefully, so I can't answer that question. <laughs> I don't know. There's no answer. Uh, we're definitely going to sell something. It'd be, disappointing. It'd be very disappointing we sell nothing. And that okay. really doesn't answer your question. That's an answer. Maybe one quick one since this, since those were quick. Um, the yields on your 22 starts, uh, I think you were saying before, sort of low high fives or a stick below six on, on your current yeah. active. Are you thinking close to six on the 22 and 23 starts? Uh, sorry, are we thinking below, call it 5.5.75 on the 22 starts? Yes. We've said that already, though. What's your question? I just wanted to clarify. Thank you. Sorry, Sam. Are you asking about whether or not the, the starts in 23 are in line with our development yields for 22? Asking whether or not uh, you, the comment you made, Philippe, earlier about sort of a stick below 6% was in reference to the 22 starts. Yeah, so it was, it was referencing the 22 starts, but I would say the 23 starts are going to fall in line, if not higher, just given the benefit of time and, and, and increased rents. I mean, I, I, I suspect that you're uh, probably focusing on what everyone else is focusing, which is ultimately the unbelievable value creation that these 11 starts are going to contribute to uh, to H&R. Sure. And if you take the delta between, frankly, those yields and where current cap rates are, it becomes very clear to us that that's where um, an interesting component of the value creation for the upcoming years is going to come from. And why, frankly, you could see the excitement in my voice and everyone else's. Yeah, but Sam, just a note of caution. You know, the cap to adjust your cap rates are now values for the after the residential hasn't happened that as quickly as it should because the cap rates have come down too quickly, which means that what was four and a quarter six months ago it could be have a three handle on it, a three point seven five. I don't know if that's sustainable. When so Philippe's talking about five point seven five to three and a half, the three and a half is probably not necessarily sustainable. If interest rates rise, the three and a half will go up. In Canada versus the United States which is a more mature market in the United States because it's much smaller. You have Toronto, Vancouver, and Toronto, Vancouver. You really don't have a whole lot else. Sometimes you have Montreal. You saw the land values go up. So there's a lot of developers in Canada. The prices got frothy, and the profit accrues to the, to the landowner. In the United States, because there's so much more abundance of land, there's so many more cities to participate in, the land values didn't go up as so acutely as they did in Toronto. Therefore, there's still a lot of room to make profit in the United States until those land values go up. Now, in some cities, Orlando, Tampa, they have pretty close to doubled uh, since pre-pandemic to today. But that still doesn't take under the effect that the cap rates are down to four and a half to call it 3.75 or something. I don't know when, when you're talking in your numbers, you should use it and 3.75 is sustainable. I think you should go back to your modeling and say, Two years from now, we're building it today at five and three quarter. We're probably going to be looking more like pre-pandemic four and a half. Therefore, the, if, the, if it does stay at three and a half, I can assure you that the costs are going to go up, but they're going to, go, they're going to translate into going up in land, not necessarily in building. Building is a commodity. Land is not. Land is a, the profit always will accrue to land guy. So don't, I don't think you can use three and a half, and I don't think we're going to take down our Everest values to three and a half just because there was a couple of transactions that Blackstone bought at three and a half. That's not necessarily indicative of the future. That's a good caller. Thank you very much. We have no further questions at this time. I'll turn the call back over to the presenters. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. We look forward to continuing to update you on our progress over the upcoming quarters. Have a great day. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.